RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Monday morning is Health Hacks morning here at Reality Check Radio, and we're into part two of uh, Glenn telling us about weight management. Okay, Glenn, good to have you back. Good to see and hear you again. Yeah, good to see you, Paul. All right, so just a quick uh, recap on what we talked about last week as a way of uh, sort of on-ramping, onboarding into part two of this. Yeah, so we, we've we talked about weight management being very, very difficult for many people and the fact that we shouldn't be blaming people for this because it's the environment, the food environment, that's um, making it difficult difficult to control their weight. I, I remember you talking last week, Paul, about when you look back at a, a class photo from, say, 70 years ago, you know, it's very unusual to see someone who's overweight, whereas yep. nowadays it's it's Even common, the teacher, even the teacher. Indeed. Right. You know, now it's, it's common, isn't it, with the statistics showing that even one-sixth of children in New Zealand are obese. So... You know, something has changed, and what's changed is the environment, not our genetics. So I think it's important that we stop this fat shaming, that we start, you know, we stop making assumptions about people because they're overweight, because I think for a large extent, it's the problem of the food environment, uh, not necessarily a fault of the individual. So I think that's a really important point to make. And the other second important point is, I think we've misunderstood uh, weight management. We've been focused on this uh, calorie model uh, where we talk about energy in and energy out. If you put less energy in uh, and put more energy out, you should lose weight. That's uh, the first law of thermodynamics. I'm sure we all learned that in fifth form uh, physics. You know, it should work. The problem is it doesn't work. And why doesn't that simple calorie model work? Because we are hormonally far more complicated than that. And we really have to focus on hormones, and the important hormone is insulin. So when insulin level is high, we store fat, and when insulin is low, we burn fat. And what controls insulin? Blood glucose. And how does glucose get into our blood? It's from consuming carbohydrates. So it all comes back to the overconsumption of carbohydrates, pushing up insulin and putting us into fat storage mode. So it's really the hormonal model. And it gets a little bit more complicated because all these hormones talk to each other. They can gang up on us. Oh. You know, so <laughs> it's it's not just insulin, but it's also the stress hormone cortisol. And I'm going to go on and talk about some of these other hormones that collectively can gang up on us and make it very difficult to lose weight, you know, despite our best efforts. Yeah. How many people have gone on a diet? I've done it myself actually. And exactly that thing, that that energy equation and nothing happens or hardly anything happens. And it's kind of like WTF. Or it it happens initially and then it stops. Yes. Tapers off. Yeah. Yeah, and and the answer, why does that not work? Because it is far more complicated than just energy in in and energy out is the answer. Okay, so you've got to know how kind of how the system works. You've got to know how the system works and you've got to focus on the hormones. Yeah, Yeah, focus on the hormones. That's it. It's the hormone therapy of weight regulation. 
Okay, the so where do theory? Sorry, the hormone therapy where, uh, or theory. Where do we start talking about this? Uh, given that, what, what what point do we start talking about here to get into that? So, so the key is that we should be eating whole foods, uh, and we shouldn't be eating too often. So, we should really be utilizing this theory that uh, if we're not hungry, particularly at breakfast time, then don't eat breakfast. So, we are eating too often, and we are eating the wrong foods. We're eating ultra processed foods. So, if we go back to eating whole, unprocessed foods and eating only when we're hungry, I think that would solve it. But because of these complicated hormones, it's not going to work for everyone. And what we're going to go on and talk about today is what are some of the other uh, options, not necessarily options that I favor, but um, options that might be part of the discussion for people who are really struggling in this area. Okay, so presumably there's kind of a list to go through. What do we, yes. what do we start yeah. with? So we're going to start talking about some of the medicines that uh, can be prescribed for weight loss. And then we're going to talk about bariatric surgery or weight loss surgery, um, things like uh, the gastric bypass, which is fascinating. And I'm going to tie it all in to this conversation about hormones. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to that bit. Okay. All right. So we're going to start with um, quite a... Uh, a reasonably old medicine, um, Duramine. I'm not sure if you're familiar with with that brand name, Duramine. No, it's, um, I'm not. Sorry, no. Its real name is called uh, Fenteramine, and it's not actually a classic amphetamine, but it's sort of in that amphetamine um, group. So what it does is it just speeds everything up, and when when your metabolism is sped up, you're going to burn more energy and it reduces appetite. So, you know, like a classic amphetamine does, it, it speeds up your metabolic rate, you're not hungry, and you will lose weight. So that that's um, duramine, but... Uh, is this the category that we used to call diet pills? This is exactly what we used to call and diet And people pills. actually took them to get speedy too, not just a diet, I can tell you yeah. that. That's exactly the problem, and that's why doctors tend not to like prescribing these medicines because uh, there is a potential for abuse. So it's like everything, Paul, when when it's used appropriately uh, in the right circumstances with the right people, um, with the right controls, it can be useful, but um, as is human nature, uh, it can also be abused, and most doctors are reluctant because of that abuse potential. Does that mean meth addicts are all skinny? Um, <laughs> I um, but that's I'm speed, right? I'm just curious because that, that would uh, do that, wouldn't it? Speed up the metabolism and exactly. You know? So I'm not sure if uh, if they are all skinny, but um, you would you would expect um, yeah. to be improving your metabolic rate. Yeah, not, not that not, I'm advocating. Uh, not necessarily improving your life. <laughs> no, and I'm not advocating yeah. it for weight loss either. So if you can manage that sort of medication, it can be effective. It um, it can be effective. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. And then um, and then there's another one, and I don't think it's available uh, as the combination medicine in New Zealand. It's um, fenteramine, which is the duramine, and it's combined with topiramate which is often used as an epilepsy medicine, and the combination reduces appetite. 
Um, so I, I am aware that they have been prescribed as individual medicines, but I think in the US it comes as a combination medicine. So for people who are always feeling hungry, there may be a, a role for that combination of medicines. Uh, always then, feeling hungry, is is that like a condition in of itself? There's like a uh, something that you can get that, that you can't help but feel hungry all the time. Yeah, there, there's in fact a um, a condition which affects children, which is called uh, Prada Willy syndrome. I've heard of that. Uh, yeah, yeah, they can't yeah. stop. No, and it's a little bit like being a Labrador. I think it's just that um, that desire or instinct to eat is just overwhelmingly powerful. Like you're always kind of almost ravenous, starving yeah. all the time. Right. Yeah, yeah, and and Jeez. that that is something that we need to have extreme um, empathy for people who are in that situation. You know, yeah. that, an extreme craving, and and that's where that medicine seems to have a role. Gotcha. Yep. Yeah. And then um, the one that's I think been using used quite a lot recently in New Zealand. I don't think it's funded, but its name is Contrave, and it's a combination of um, bupropion and naltrexone. Now, naltrexone's interesting. It's an addiction medicine. So, it's I I think this medicine is acknowledging that for some people, uh, it's an addiction. Food, yeah. food can be considered an addiction, or or more specifically, eating the foods that we know we shouldn't eat. Um, you know, could be an addiction, and and that's where I think that medicine seems to be playing a role. So particularly people who are sugar addicts or carbohydrate addicts, you know, perhaps we have to look at it more from the psychological point of view. And and maybe there's a role for a medicine that deals specifically with addiction. Who comes up with the names for these drugs, by the way? I don't know. And I struggle, Paul, because it's so hard to work out how to spell them, you know, because yeah. they're, they're not you're prescribing. Yeah, that's why doctors write messy, because yeah, um, yeah. because you can't you just make the A look like an E, and no one knows. So that's the problem with computer generated scripts now; they can see when you've misspelled it. All oh, right, yeah, <laughs> shows it up. But uh, it's like uh, I can imagine a team sitting down in a room, coming up with, you know, taking bits of of chemical names and words and joining them together, and making a new word, and saying, "Yep, yeah, that's what we'll call it." Like, what have you got the brew? Popery on or um, nitrexalone or whatever. Uh, they sound like, uh, you know, marketers' words. Is what I'm saying. I agree with you. There, there are some really difficult, and I'm not so flash at spelling, so I really struggle in fairness. Yeah, yeah we've got to be careful <laughs> writing out this sort of stuff, right? You don't want to have them given the wrong, well, you don't want a name that's too similar. Anyway, I've always wondered about that. Okay, so that kind of um, deals with the addictive sort of part of the brain, I suppose, that sort of medication, does it, rather than you know anything to do with consuming food, digestion, so, anything like that. And I and I guess it's 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 really the the reason for this discussion is to say that there's many reasons for being overweight and to give some consideration to the addictive element as well as the hormone and the biochemical. Well, what do you and- think the proportion of that is then? That's an interesting question. The addictive uh, driver. I'm not sure I can answer that, but I expect it's much higher than um, than is acknowledged because 
I think we've probably all experienced it, um, haven't we? Mm. Particularly if you're feeling bored or well, well you know that there's some sad. comfort in it, right? There's a feeling yeah. of comfort if you're in a sad or, or you're a loose end or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Or you, need to, you just need to fill in time. Yeah, and I, I guess the big part of this discussion is we are very, very quick to judge people who. Uh, who are overweight, for example, and and I guess this discussion is to try and help people to realise that there are many reasons for being overweight, um, and some of those are hormonal, some are psychological, um, some will be biochemical, some will be physiological. You know, and I I I think it's just oversimplistic to make judgments. I've been guilty of that. Yeah, yeah. So, though so I've also been overweight too. So, and I'm sure other people have thought that about me but you know yeah, yeah I'll, I'll face up to that yep you've got a point yeah and then um the there's another medicine that's been used quite often it's um brand name is sac sender and it's um its real name is liraglutide liraglutide and um it's really interesting what it's doing it it acts like this hormone called glp1 and what that's doing is it promotes the feeling of fullness. Um, so that's that's really interesting. And that's a good one. Yeah. So, and then there's this other one, um, GIP, um, and they kind of they they're, they're sort of similar. But what the pharmaceutical industries are doing is they're trying to interact with this hormonal process of of how you feel full. Uh, and then there's another one um, called ghrelin, which is your hunger hormone. So uh, manipulating these two hormones or these three hormones um, is where the pharmaceutical industry is trying to create medicines that will deal or make you feel full um, at a lower amount of food. So we'll it's, it's fascinating. The- will mimic the sort of behavior of so when you when these these hormones are doing their thing are they is this happening in your brain or is it happening in another part of the body now that's a that's an absolutely fascinating question um so these hormones are released from the gut and different places in the guts and then and then they're interacting with the satiety center in the brain so so yes but there's this fascinating um interaction here that the gut microbiome the trillions of viruses and bacteria and fungi and and even worms that live in our gut they also interact with this process so it may not even be as simple as as we're suggesting here because it there seems to be an interaction with what sort of bugs you have in there and this comes back to this idea that we grow bad bugs by feeding them sugar and we promote good bugs by giving them fiber so that seems to be part of it as well so there's a whole array of sensors basically that are looking for I, I don't know benchmarks moments they're feeding that back when they're triggered it all goes in and and relates to each other i suppose checked off against each other and there's some part of the brain that makes a decision on all that information to do something yeah and you you are you've explained it beautifully and what you're indicating is that this is actually a very complex process beyond um you and i feeling hungry and eating something there's a there's a whole lot more going on and 
could it infect the uh, microbiome that's hungry rather than us? You know, because and they're tapping in, at, right? They're tapping into the network and getting what they want. Yeah, there's this this bi-directional relationship between the chemicals made by the microbiome and and the chemicals made in our brain that interact with the microbiome. So this is a complex process, and we we just tapping the edges of understanding the complexity in all of this. Serotonin, for example, the happiness hormone, 90% of it is made in the gut. Only 10% is made in the brain. I didn't know no, that. So yeah. is, depression, is depression not a brain issue, but a gut microbiome issue? In fact, what you're saying, and this is really interesting, I know it's slightly off target, but maybe it's not, is that the, there's actually, in a way, distributed thinking in the body. It's not necessarily in one place. Okay, it might come together in one place, knitted together, but other parts of the body are kind of doing their own processing and and part of the thinking in another part of the body, maybe. Like your microbiome, which is not even kind of yours. So it's it's so true. And when you start thinking like that, it blows your mind a little bit, doesn't it? it? Does. You know, this this um a gut feeling, you know. Yeah, well that's it. it. Is that actually neurotransmitters that are produced by our microbiome interacting with our brain? You know, is that what a gut feeling means? And and I think it is. I, I think that's exactly what it is. Because you can feel that gut feeling. You can actually feel the location of it. It is kind of in the gut. Yes. yes it doesn't it feel like it's up there. It does. It's really interesting. Okay. All right. So, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a lot going on <laughs> to, yeah. to put, put a short version on it. All right, are we into the surgery part now? Yeah. So I want to talk about bariatric surgery. I'm I'm not claiming to be an absolute expert in this area, but I find it fascinating. So what we're talking about by bariatric surgery is we're either reducing the size of the stomach or we're bypassing the stomach. Uh, and the impact of that is that uh, if the stomach's smaller, we feel full earlier. So, so that's one of the impacts. But there's one um, bypass surgery where the stomach, stomach is bypassed completely and even part of the small intestine is so there's less uh, opportunity to absorb calories. Is that a good and, idea, bypassing the stomach, though? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, it's a crucial organ, isn't it? Or Yeah, so I, I don't want to seem um, at all judgmental in yeah. any of the comments I'm making because – you know, for some people, they have honestly tried everything and tried really hard, and this becomes the the only option. And in many circumstances, this is highly effective. But you do you do ask a, a very important question. There's a perfectly good organ, and we're surgically bypassing it, or permanently reducing its size, or even removing it. Um, to, at some level, there's a, a level of philosophical concern about that. I, I think is what you're you're indicating. Yeah, I, I guess that's where I'm coming from. Um, it wasn't. It's not designed to be taken out of the loop, is it? I mean, it's... Uh, and and what one of the biggest um, issues that I observe post bariatric surgery is that. There is a large amount of nutrient deficiency. So because it creates, it deliberately creates malabsorption, 
Um, a lot of the minerals, particularly the ones that have, are absorbed high up in the intestine or in the stomach, um, I'm thinking about vitamin B12 and thiamine. You know, we see a lot of people post-bariatric surgery who are very nutrient deficient if they're not religious with taking their supplement program. You know, so it, it really shows us that, you know, it, it has a it has quite a significant impact on health if it's not done well. And what I observe, many of the people that have their bariatric surgery in New Zealand, they have excellent post-operative care. But I see uh, many people going to overseas hospitals where the quality of the surgery is seems to be world-class. You know, they're going to Thailand, for example, um, there doesn't seem to be any issue with the quality of the surgery, but they don't get the the post-surgical follow-up, which to my view seems to be as important as the surgery itself. Okay, so it's an extreme thing for someone who's tried everything like you've just said, but have they tried everything? There must be a, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to, be judgmental like you say but there must be something they can still do before getting to that it, truly surely um i so, mean it's not an impossible situation is it because we, we know the levers and we know kind of how the system works there must be yeah, a way, surely. i i think i think it's really um, important that that every individual has their own journey i would i would like to hope that before having bariatric surgery, everyone has had high quality advice around okay, the hormonal that's model. Yeah. You know, but there definitely are people who have done that. I can think of um, two very close friends who have done that, and I know that they have done it extremely well, understood it clearly, and being very very disciplined in doing it. And despite that, um, bariatric surgery has been the option they've chosen, and it's been highly effective. Okay, there you go. All right. Yeah, it's like it's like everything, um, but it wouldn't be your go-to. It wouldn't be where you start. It's, it's I think, um, one of those end options. Okay. And interesting, when, when you look at how one of the ways it works, it seems to interact with this GLP, um, this GLP-1 and GIP um, intestinal hormones that we were talking about earlier and I was listening to a podcast um, by an engineer called Ivor Cummings um, interesting we, we have Ivor on our program are you kidding every month he comes on yeah from Dublin oh, yeah great guy well, I've, I've actually met Ivor in person so um, oh, okay so, yeah. done better than me <laughs> <laughs> but I remember Ivor talking about uh, this experiment where they had two groups of rats and they gave one group of rats um, ordinary uh, rat pellets, and then and they monitored the the rat's weight, and then they gave another group of rats the the same volume of pellets, but it was turned into a flower. So the the only processing was to turn it into a flower, yep. and yep. that group of rats gained weight compared with the group of rats that ate the same number of calories as pellets, and. And that's really saying even minimal processing of food can have an impact. But the interesting part of this is why does it have an impact? And what Ivor talked about is that when it was pellets, 
it stimulated GLP-1, which, um, if if you remember what we were talking about earlier, that that um, reduces your appetite or it, it right. stimulates um, the, the the sense of fullness. Yeah. Whereas when you when it was turned into flour, it's absorbed um, higher up in the gut and it stimulates GIP, which doesn't create that sense of fullness. So I started to understand why we talk about whole foods um, cooked from scratch that are high in um, in fiber because it's absorbed lower in the intestine and it stimulates the GLP uh, the yeah the GLP one, whereas something that's made from sugar and and flour is going to is going to be absorbed in a different part and it's stimulating the wrong hormones. So I would ask the question rather than having to use Saxenda to stimulate this, have we just eaten a whole food diet that's high in fiber, um, good quality protein, and have we excluded all the sugars that are going to stimulate the GIP? You know, have we done that? And if we do that and we do that well, do we need these expensive injectable um, medicines or could we do better just by eating well? And Again, I'm I'm not wanting to be judgmental and I'm aware that there's a, a place for all of these options. I, I would hope that everyone has excluded all sugar and gone to a completely whole food diet, a completely whole food unprocessed diet, and they've done it for long enough to change their microbiome before they jump into some of these medicines. And all medicines potentially have side effects. All these lifestyle interventions also have side effects, but they tend to be positive. You yeah. know, like yeah. we sleep better, we have more energy, yeah. uh, we feel better in our mood. You know, um, the side effects you want. <laughs> the side effects you want. So, yeah, there we go. Okay, so that wouldn't be too difficult to to run that sort of well, experiment is one word, but you know, like the rats. We don't want to think of humans as rats, but. It, I mean, in what you do, reversal NZ, I mean, that's kind of a reversal yeah. concept too, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that's exactly what we're doing. We're encouraging people to have whole food diets, um, yeah. to exercise, uh, to look after their mental health, to look after their microbiome, and the vast majority of people manage their health condition without medications. Now, I'm not saying that everyone does, and there's certainly um, people yep. that do require medicines, but those people are going on to medicine knowing that they have done what they yep. could themselves, and the medicine therefore is necessary. I think often we go straight to the medicine without doing step one, and I don't think that's um, fair. I think everyone should be offered these lifestyle interventions, which are powerful, um, and Plan P, Plan B is the medication, and Plan C is the surgery. Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah, well, that's sort of sensible, isn't it? So, for folk who have bariatric surgery, and that is what shrinking the stomach or bypassing it completely, is it the same same category of surgeries? Carries the same name, does it? No, there's there's different subsets. There's bypass, um, right? And that's the, obviously the stomach bypass. Bypass tends to be a little bit. Um, uh, it's a Bigger operation than just the reducing the size of the stomach. Um, yep. Gastric sleeve is a common example of that first one. Gastric sleeve, okay. Yeah. Well, um, does it keep the weight off? 
Yeah, it was just before I came uh, onto onto this um, this call. Um, I looked that up, and um, what I saw was that people who have bariatric surgery tend to lose sixty to seventy percent of their excess weight, and then when they're reviewed at five to ten years, they've usually put ten to twenty percent back on. Um, I'm thinking that's quite generous because my personal view of it is I think more people than that put on the weight. Um, But I I do think that the aftercare has improved considerably in the last um, five years. And and I think, and when I've um, watched my, you know, my friends who have have had the surgery, it's fascinating the size of the meal that they're eating. It really is a tiny meal. You know, it's it's what would fit into the palm of your hand. It's, you know, it, it would be a quarter of the volume of what I'm eating. You know, so they are maintaining for the rest of their life a very, very small. Do they increase the frequency, though? Uh, they can do, but they're also changing the, the type of food. So they are having protein predominantly because you've got such a small volume of food, you kind of don't want to be wasting that volume with things that are high in fiber. Um, And of course, I'm a big fan of fiber, but for people post-bariatric surgery, they're focusing on the protein, um, which is kind of what we're talking about with some of our diet regimes, you know, for example, a carnivore diet, uh, which is very high in protein and fat. So kind of they've ended up on close to a carnivore diet with a small amount of vegetables (laughs) after going through this process. Um, And does it, um, are there any complications going forward or does everything sort of heal up and carry on? Okay. Usually, um, is that yeah, the that you're talking about the post-operative um, care? Yeah, you've had you've had a major operation, so um, there's there's always risks. But the biggest thing I'm observing is the the risk of nutrient deficiency post bariatric surgery, and and I I encourage people to have their blood test done every three months, and um, to be religious with their supplement regime. Well, I remember David Longy is a great example of of what yes. how someone can transform so quickly, because I think um, before he was prime minister, he was Mister Michelin Man. You know, he was he was big. He had that surgery, and he lost a lot. He went down to pretty well what looked like on television anyway a normal weight, and his popularity soared with that. You know, it was almost like he had to do that to kind of get over the line in politics as well. Could be wrong, and it's a long time ago now. But the transformation was quite incredible, very quick. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Politicians so, seem to like to like that <laughs> procedure. It's been a few along the way. Okay, sorry, I just jumped in. You're about to say something. So um, so we just um, summarised the, the, the two um, chapters of weight loss. My my summary is that this idea of it being as simple as energy in, energy out uh, is very, very old-fashioned. Um, it's related to hormones. The important hormone is insulin, and insulin is a fat storage hormone. It's carbohydrates, particularly the refined carbohydrates, that push up insulin and put us into fat storage mode. We've got to lower 
the insulin by lowering our carb intake. So we've certainly got to avoid sugar, but we've got to think of all those white carbs as well. So flour and rice and potatoes and pasta, all of those become blood sugar, all will push up insulin. We've got to think that these hormones all gang up on us. So yeah. it's not just insulin, but it's also prednisone. And it's also this new one we've discussed, um, GLP-1 and GIP and um, ghrelin and leptin. You know, they're all, all interacting with each other and it's all focusing on the hormones. Um, and I guess my last point is, you know, we got to be, we, we shouldn't make judgments about people because they're overweight. I think um, that fat shaming needs to be a, a thing of the past. We need to realize it's the food environment um, and we need to be as much as we can afford and as much as possible eating a whole food diet. And there will be a place for medications and there will be a place for bariatric surgery, but I think it's a small place when people have done all those things that come before it all right really interesting and i hope folks you got uh, a lot out of those two parts and if you miss part one and you're hearing part two for the first time you can replay part one from our website and of course you'll be able to replay this as well and you can share it about so that's a cool thing okay glenn uh, really interesting as usual any ideas about what we're going to chat about next time round? not putting you on the spot it's okay if you haven't decided yet um, uh, I understand, but if you have any inkling and you want to put it oh, out there, I'm, feel I'm, free. I'm going to have to think about it. I might have to email you, Paul. Yeah, okay. All right. And if anyone has any suggestions, how about that? We're, we're non-binding, non-binding. But if people have any suggestions, we're not um, – I mean, plenty of people send in ideas and suggestions anyway. Maybe we'll take a look through some of those. Okay. Until next Monday, Dr. Glenn Davies, reversalnz.co.nz. We'll see you again then. Thank you, Paul. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.